John with my friend Rick Blackman and Rick said if this is no good we can always jettison it. <laughs> I just, did just say that. You did just say that. Um, hey John, so good to be here. I always love being Look able at that ocean behind us. That's talk nice. with you. It is, <laughs> it is a beautiful thing to see and uh, we're walking together in this Lenten season through Dallas Willard's book Renovation of the Heart. Going to talk about some deep stuff today. Dallas gets into the will and the will is a super important part of person's um, it's often not talked about a lot in psychology because people aren't sure if it's scientific or not. And yeah. it gets dark. So just go with us into the uh, dark, dense stuff because it's worth it because there's no other way to be healed. Uh, Dallas writes about how when we're alienated from God, the complexity of the human will moves irresistibly towards duplicity uh, in the harmful sense of deception. This is a result of pretending to feel and think one way while acting another. You ever do that? Uh, often the deception involved is self-deception. And I, I was thinking, this is why we all go to therapists, at least all of us that do. I don't understand myself. I expect you to be able to explain me yeah. to myself because <laughs> if I knew myself, I wouldn't feel the need to go to you. Yeah, and I need the same thing myself too, yeah. Um, our pride will constantly trap us between desire and fear. Rather than surrender our desire, like, okay, I want something, I gotta just let it go. We will do what we want, but conceal it because of the fear of consequences of being known. Then he goes on, this is page 148. Um, sad to say, we live in a world where others, loved ones, institutions of society, government, and those who are running them, are with distressing regularity engaged in duplicity, deceitfulness, and darkness. Yes, they are. <laughs> They're very dark. It is. And then, how often we have to deal with someone whom we know at the moment to be simply working out how he or she is going to mislead us. And I was talking to somebody yesterday who struggled. They actually just left their job. And part of what they had to deal with is they would talk to a boss where... They would say, here's what I want to communicate. And they would know when they were saying it, their boss was working in his mind on how he would communicate it to other people in the organization to save his face or other parts of his anatomy um, in ways that were not actually honest. Yeah, yeah. So, so let me put it to you in the form of a question when we think about uh, duplicity, the problem of the splintered will, uh, self-deception, you see a lot of couples, you've seen a lot of couples in marital therapy over the years. How often do you see a couple where one spouse knows something about the other spouse that that person is blind to about themselves? Um, in all these years of doing counseling, mm -hmm. all of them. I would Never say. a single case? I don't think so. Wow. I think like going in, my presupposition yep. is the husband will have expertise about the wife and see things about the wife that she won't own or acknowledge or even maybe see about herself. And the wife will have similar expertise uh, about the husband. It's, and it's, do they receive it from you? 
Well, yeah, there's a moment I have, I think I was telling you about this earlier, when, when I'm pointing out something, let's say we're having a, a, a conversation in counseling and I'll say something to the husband about his being stubborn or his being manipulative or trying to be controlling. Um, and you know, I've somehow gotten the credibility to be able to say that to him and mm -hmm. he'll find that helpful and he'll find that useful and wow, I have not really seen this about myself. That's very self-deception that Dallas is writing about there. And in the other chair, I can see the wife just like almost rolling her eyes and thinking, I have been saying this to him, like practically in the same words that you're using, yeah. Doc, uh, for years, yeah. and it hasn't been received. And yeah. I marvel at that. Like, you know, it's not like that I'm so smart. I'm not even saying something particularly new. It's maybe commonsensical and maybe even at times kind of obvious. Huh about a person. So why but is it they, that we defend ourselves from hearing it from the people who know us the best and, and maybe even love us the most? Well, that is just such a hard question. That, that that's true, that we do defend ourselves like that yeah. is just inescapably true. I, my first thought is we are just so defensive yeah. that we're so fragile. Um, and I'm, I'm the same way. My wife can point stuff out I think, generally speaking, that things my wife would say about me, probably the things your wife would say about you, are right, mm -hmm. but they they aren't they aren't received well, <laughs> you know. And I have to I have to work with what's this your, all the time. What's your point? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, in because there there is oh, I remember we did a talk you and I um, about acceptance and the different the scale the different mm -hmm. levels of acceptance and. And you know what it's clear to me is if I'm going to make some headway on sharing insights that I have about my wife with her, she has to feel loved and accepted first. If she does not feel that already, yeah. then for sure her defenses, or I'll just use myself, my defenses when she's trying to point something out about me. Now, if I feel loved and accepted and she's a skillful communicator, this is what I play around with in therapy all the time. Like, I want to benefit. I want couples to benefit from insights yep. that they have about one another. But, but sort of like Dallas is writing, I already know they're going to have to wade through that natural defensiveness and self-deception and misleading that Dallas is and talking about. And sometimes our splintered wills and what we're really thinking or feeling have a way of... Uh, leaking out into the open when we're not prepared for it. Uh, our whole country has been talking for the last several days about the Oscars took place fairly yeah, recently. That's right. And there was a moment when Chris Rock was making jokes about Will Smith's wife and Will Smith, who won the Oscar, uh, got up and walked up on the platform and there was that, that moment of anger and he slapped him and everybody's trying to figure out how does something like this go on? Um, as somebody who works with people who have impulses, um, conflict, anger that comes out, how did you find yourself responding as you watched that? You know, my first thought is to remember when people ask me, what is a Christian therapist? Mm -hmm. My first thought is, I don't have any trouble believing that we both um, are made in the image of God and that we're stained by sin yeah. an original sin yeah. like if we got all the the uh, environmental things just right and we made a perfect society and things were just rolling around ducks in a row we'd still do the wrong thing sometimes i i, I uh 
was reading about there's a there's a um, uh, psychologist Paul Bloom from Yale. And he's written a book against empathy. This is really interesting. And those of you who are watching, if you feel like you're a thinker and you're not good at feeling, um, this will be hopeful for you. Yeah. Uh, Bloom says, empathy is the ability to feel what another person is feeling. So you burn your finger, I wince. Mm -hmm. but, but he says, we make it like that's the ultimate virtue. Actually, it's not. He says, what's much more important than empathy is compassion. Compa and from, from the perspective of our walking through renovation of the heart, Compassion includes the orientation of the will. In compassion, I will the good for you. So I'm concerned for you. Compassion actually involves a whole different neural network than empathy does. Empathy is about emotion. I feel what you feel. And it's very interesting in watching a story like what we saw with the Oscars uh, this last week. Um, one of the difficulties with empathy is empathy always carries bias with it as well. When I look at somebody who's part of my in-group that looks like me, I feel more empathy for them. And often, leaders will, will tell stories of atrocities committed against our in-group and use the empathy people feel towards our in-group to stir up hostility towards the other group. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting in watching the Will Smith story and seeing how that plays out, um, writers who are African-American will tend to write and communicate a sense of pain about how our community is perceived. This is like painful because I identify with what happened there. And white writers, other folks often find it quite a bit easier to judge or distance because when it comes to empathy, uh, it's often profoundly not conscious. But I'll, I'll make one more distinction that I'd love to get your thoughts on it. There's another writer who talks about the difference between reading tragedy and reading tabloid articles. Um, part of what makes uh, tragedy effective is that the protagonist in the tragedy is somebody I identify with. And so I find myself saying, as I'm watching or reading this story, yes, I'm that way. I could do that. I could have that same problem. Identify with it, yeah. Um, a tabloid takes the opposite perspective. I distance myself from that person and say, oh, what a mess that person is. What a train wreck they are. Let's talk together about how awful they are to reinforce our own sense of superiority. You know, that <clears throat> empathy, when I think of what that distinction you were just making, and I want to ask you a question, John, mm -hmm. is not a panacea. Yeah. If I can generate more empathy, and I am frequently trying to do that in the counseling enterprise, but that's not enough on its own. So I love that. I want to ask you then, if, if empathy does not equal compassion, and mm -hmm. compassion gets more at the will and willing the good of the other, which you have defined many times for us from Dallas, is a definition of love. How do you generate more compassion? How do you do that? What would Dallas say about that? It's a wonderful question. Uh, you know, in many, many ways, that's the quest we're on together, yeah. is how do we become more compassionate people? And Dallas talks about that order of love that uh, we love and compassion. I take it as a branch of love. It's a kind of love we love because he first loved us. And so spending time at the beginning, experiencing the love of God and receiving that as I'm alone with him, as I'm in nature, as I read scripture, as I'm experiencing that through a good friend, and realizing the goodness of being loved, and then asking, 
God, would you kindle that kind of love in me so that I will get more joy out of extending that love to other people? And then I think becoming a student of other people where uh, I'm not simply trying to uh, feel inside myself what is it that they're feeling, but I'm asking what do they really desire and how can I contribute to their well-being? How can I contribute to your well-being? That's the goal. Let's work at that today. Let's ask God to help make us more compassionate people and to align our will in that direction. See you next time.